I hope that you're all uh, had a good lunch uh, this afternoon and are not feeling hungry because our passage uh, starts with a question about fasting. Fasting, that's abstaining from food for a time. It's actually quite a fad these days. For instance, there is the 16-8 diet, which involves fasting for 16 hours per day and eating with an eight-hour window, um, usually from uh, mid day till 8pm. And there's the 5-2 diet, which involves eating only 25% of a normal calorie intake on two non-consecutive days per week. As you can tell, I've yet to adopt either of those. (laughs) But fasting is also a common religious practice. Uh, Last Sunday, Muslims around the world completed Ramadan. During this uh, holy month, Muslims refrain from eating and drinking between uh, sunrise and sunset believing that this discipline will bring them closer to God. Uh, Hinduism and Buddhism likewise encourage and prescribe fasting for greater spiritual consciousness. Uh, Several of us will have grown up in cultures where fasting was a regular part of life. And as we can see from our passage, fasting was also a regular practice in Jesus' day, at least amongst the uh, Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, fasting in uh, Old Testament times was a sign of mourning, of a mourning for sin. It was a sign of repentance. In uh, Old Testament law, there was only one prescribed day of fasting, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But during and after the time when the Jews were exiled in Babylon, the the practice of of fasting developed amongst pious Jews. They knew that their exile was punishment from God for their hard-hearted sin, so they prayed and fasted as a sign of turning back to God. Uh, For instance, in uh, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel records, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him in prayer and supplications with fasting. That's what pious Jews did. And the Pharisees were the keenest and most zealous of the religious Jews of Jesus' day. They were at every uh, prayer meeting, and they used to fast twice a week, on Mondays and Thursdays. And I imagine that John the Baptist's disciples fasted for similar reasons. They too were looking for God to come and establish his kingdom. John had preached of one coming after him who would, uh, was more powerful than he and who would baptize God's people with the Holy Spirit. But now John was in prison. And I imagine his disciples, they were earnestly seeking after God, longing that John would be delivered. So given that background, were the Pharisees and John's disciples wrong to fast? No, what they were doing was good. They were waiting for God to send his king. They were not a bunch of eels uh, simply kind of wallowing in religious gloom. But Jesus' disciples, they didn't fast. And some people were puzzled by that. So they come and ask Jesus why his disciples didn't fast. And Jesus answers, verse 19, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, 
so long as they have him with them. Now, it's a breathtaking answer full of significance. And we're going to spend some time unpacking it and thinking through its implications. First, Jesus is the bridegroom. Now, by using this analogy, Jesus is implying that he is a bridegroom and that his disciples are the guests. Now, this analogy of Jesus being a bridegroom might fall a bit flat for some of us. But for Jesus' hearers who were soaked from infancy in the Old Testament scriptures, the significance could not be lost. You see, in the Old Testament, when God wanted to get across to his people the nature of his relationship to them, he used a number of metaphors. And one of the key ones that he used was that he, God, was the a bridegroom, that the husband, and that Israel was his bride. And so the prophet Isaiah addresses Israel in chapter 54 with these words. Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. Similarly, in chapter 62, Isaiah says these words. No longer will they call you deserted or name the land desolate, but you'll be called Hephzibah, and your land will be called Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And in Hosea, God says to his people, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. So who is the bridegroom in Bible imagery? He is the Lord Almighty. He is your maker. He is the one who created this universe. He is the one who is passionate about his people and who loves them and delights in them and he's going to commit himself to them forever. Do you, kind of, do you feel the force of what Jesus is saying as he's using this seemingly innocuous little metaphor? Jesus is making a divine claim that he is God who has come into the world to seek out his bride, his people for whom he yearns with a passion and delight. And when you're at a wedding feast and the, the bridegroom is there and the bride's there and the guests and ushers, what is the one thing you do not do? You don't go around mourning and fasting, do you? No, it's party time. In fact, it's my experience that having waited for the wedding photographer to take photos of everyone at the wedding in every possible combination... And then having to wait further as you shuffle through the reception line, you fall on the food with great gusto as soon as you can. It's party. When Jesus is around, it's not a time for sorrow, but for joy and celebration and feasting. But, says Jesus in verse 20, the time will come when the bridegroom is taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. Now, this is very significant because it's the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus speaks 
of his death. That phrase taken from them implies Jesus will be violently removed from his disciples. Even at this early stage, Jesus knows that his mission, his heavenly father given him, is to die. Such is Jesus' love and passion for his bride, the church. He will willingly go to the cross to pay the penalty for her sins. And Jesus says on that day, when he's violently taken away from his disciples, yes, it would be appropriate to fast. So how does this relate to us? Well, this time that we live in between Jesus' death and resurrection and his return when he will come in all the glory of heaven to wind up human history and usher in the new creation. Between those times, well, it's a time for feasting and fasting. For both sorrow and joy. See, Jesus is the bridegroom, so rejoice in his presence and mourn his absence. You see, for the unbelieving Christian world, whether it's a time for feasting or fasting is dependent on whether you want to lose weight or whether you're observing religious rules or whether the personal circumstances of your life are going well or badly. For most people, whether they are happy or sad, celebrating or mourning, depends on whether their football team has won or whether their employment is going well or whether how their social life or love life is working out. But authentic Christian experience is to be Christ-centered. By that I mean that our ups and downs are to be controlled not by the ups and downs of our personal circumstances in this life, but by the spiritual presence and the bodily absence of Jesus Christ. You see, since the day of Pentecost, Jesus, well, he lives in all his people by his Holy Spirit. We are never separated from Jesus. We can never be separated from him. We are loved by him. Just as a bridegroom cherishes his bride on their wedding day, so Jesus cherishes every one of us who has put their trust in him. We are forgiven. Beloved children of the living God, our life is hidden in Jesus and his in us. We are never alone, never abandoned. And even when we are suffering, we know that God, in a mysterious way, is able to use that suffering for good. And what is more, we look forward to that day, we're rejoicing, when we will be physically with the Lord Jesus Christ, our bridegroom, in glory, feasting with him in the new creation, for all eternity. That's why the Apostle Peter, writing in his uh, old age to Christians who are under pressure and suffering persecution, could say these words, Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, Peter can write that because Jesus is the bridegroom. He is present by his spirit with his people. But although Jesus is with us by his spirit, 
He is bodily absent. We do not let live in the new creation. Instead, we live in a world where Christ is not honored and where the spiritual forces of evil are active. We see all around us the, the, the suffering of a broken world. We see the, the brokenness in our own lives. And we long for Jesus' presence and his coming. And when we feel that absence, and when we yearn for Jesus, fasting can be an appropriate and helpful aid in expressing that yearning for Jesus' intervention and ultimate return. Friends, actually this passage is not telling us whether or not we should fast in some sort of petty legalistic way. In fact, the New Testament never commands Christians to fast, but it does describe Christians fasting. And I take it from that, that whether we literally fast from food, well, it's actually a personal matter between us and God. The New Testament tells us that if we do fast, it is to be a a private matter, expressing our longing for him and the grieving over sin. But what this passage is definitely telling us is that Jesus and the gospel should increasingly be controlling our heart, our outlook on life, even our emotions. That's why joy is a fruit of the Spirit. That's why the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord always. I said again, rejoice, knowing the bridegroom, and having, knowing that he, he loves you and lives in you, with all the blessings that flow from that, is always grants rejoice and be happy. And brothers and sisters, that's one of the reasons why it's great coming to church, because it's one of the things that helps us to rejoice in the Lord when we come together. Jesus is the bridegroom, so rejoice in his presence and mourn his absence. And then finally, Jesus is the bridegroom, so don't return to Old Testament religion. That's what these two little uh, parables in verses uh, 21 and 22 are all about. Verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will, be, will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. Uh, in the ancient world, you, 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 you couldn't or wouldn't patch an old shirt with a new piece of unshrunk cloth. If he did, when he washed it, the new cloth would shrink, and of course the, the tear would be worse. You just wouldn't do it. The, the new cloth and the old shirt are that incompatible. No one would be that foolish. And it's similar with the second illustration in verse 22. And, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. In the, again, in the ancient world, wine was stored in wineskins made from animal hides. New wineskins are, are soft and pliable. They stretch. So they're suitable for new wine, which is still fermenting and producing gases. The new wineskins will happily cope with that. But old wineskins, well, they're rigid and stiff. And put new wine, and the pressure builds up, and the whole thing bursts. It's actually even worse with bottles. Uh, when I was a, a teenager, my brother and I decided to make some homemade ginger beer. 
It was in the late 70s, actually during the troubles with the IRA. We were, we were bringing the stuff in our, our garage, but we didn't release the pressure in the bottles. And they started to explode. And people seriously thought a bomb had gone off. See, in the ancient world, everybody knew that you don't put new wine into old wineskins. The two are incompatible. And both illustrations are making the same point. There is a radical newness in how people are to relate to God with the coming of the bridegroom. Jesus can't be incorporated into what came before. You can't simply patch Jesus onto Old Testament Judaism. It's amazing how easy it is to think of Jesus in that way. I feel there's a bit of a hole in my life. I lack a bit of purpose and spirituality, so I will sew on a Jesus patch. But it won't work. It won't do the trick. It will tear. The danger is that you'll think that there's something wrong with Jesus. Oh, I tried a bit of Christianity, but it didn't work. But the reality is you never understood what Jesus came to do. Jesus didn't come to add to your life. He came to give you a brand new one. And this is what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law failed to see. See, they wanted to add Jesus to their Old Testament religion. But Jesus has come as the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed. He was the one for whom the fasts were longing. He was the one to whom John the Baptist pointed. It's a bit like a, a space rocket taking off. You know, before uh, takeoff, the rocket is held upright by this uh, massive uh, steel gantries. That gantry is absolutely vital. Without it, the rocket isn't secure. It could fall over. But once the rocket is taking off, a new phase is entered. If you've seen films of rockets uh, taking off, you know what happens. The gantry falls away. Its job is done. It's now redundant. The coming of Jesus is left off in the purposes of God. Things can never be the same again. And it has to be said that the Christian church across the world and down the ages has often been slow to recognize this. They've continued to embrace aspects of Old Testament religion which Jesus has superseded and made redundant. Let me finish by giving a couple of examples. The first is in our attitude to buildings. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to meet with God, you went to a physical building. You went to the temple in Jerusalem, before or before that, the tabernacle. But now the presence of God is found in Jesus, and it's found in Jesus' people as they gather together in his name. Church buildings are simply that, buildings used by groups of Christians to meet together. They have no necessary or intrinsic connection with the presence of God. And so we ought never to treat them as though they did. Please don't ever call or ever think of a church building, however beautiful or however impressive, as a house of God. There has only ever been one house of God, and that was the temple in Jerusalem. This lovely 
church building which we're meeting in with. It's his very precious indeed. It's beauty, it's position and size, it's historical associations, and which also needs a new roof. Is wonderful. But it's about, it's as much a house of God as the downstairs loo in my home. You see, since the coming of Jesus, there are no holy places. There used to be holy places, but no longer. There are holy people who have been made holy through the work of Christ and the indwelling presence of his spirit. Church buildings are important. Yes, why? Because people are important. But far too often, church buildings have been given a significance that takes people's attention away from Jesus, the bridegroom, and his commission to make disciples of all nations. And it has restricted new congregations being set up, new churches being established, so that the gospel could be spread. And this leads me on to another area where the Christian church has often run wrongly hung on to Old Testament religion. In the Old Testament, God ordained that some of his people from the tribe of Levi should serve as priests. They had several functions, one of which was to teach God's people. That that function is as necessary to, uh, today as it was then. But other functions of the Old Testament priesthood have become obsolete. You see, that the priests had to offer on behalf of their fellow Israelites sacrifice for sin. And in the high priest, especially, they had someone who, as their representative, went into the, the presence of God in the, in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus is now our high priest, who has entered the true Holy of Holies on our behalf once and for all. There are now no more sacrifices to be made. There is no need for any other intermediary. And so it's so unhelpful and misleading that the word priests continues to be used of Christian ministers in some denominations, such as ours in the Church of England. It's unhelpful and misleading for pastors to have special titles or, or wear robes that give the impression they are part of somehow, somehow a priestly class. We must never think that some people, because of their age or status or office, somehow have a better access to God than, than any other Christian believer. To think or act like that is to adopt Old Testament religion, which Jesus Christ has superseded. Instead, all of us, who know Jesus the bridegroom, are indwelt by Jesus. And we have been equipped by Jesus to serve and bless one another. When Old Testament believers came to the temple, much of their worship was carried out on their behalf by a priestly class. Now, since Christ our bridegroom has come, the whole of our life is to be lived out in joyful worship, And when we come together on a Sunday or in our life groups, we come not as observers, but as active participants looking for opportunities to bless and serve and to encourage and to rejoice together. 
in the one who gave himself for us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you are the bridegroom. Thank you that you love us with a a godly passion and desire. Thank you that you have bound us to yourself in love forever. Thank you that you dwell in all your people. Please may your life and presence increasingly be the barometer of how we react to life circumstances. Please guard us from trying to add you as a patch onto our pre-existing assumptions and practices when you've made all things radically new. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.